It's Trey Kay, and from West Virginia Public Broadcasting and PRX, you're listening to Us and Them, the show that tells the stories about the things that divide Americans. 2020 was a year of racial reckoning in America. But 2022 is starting off with a full-scale backlash over how we talk about race and racism. But to get to where we are now, we need to back up. Before the world learned the name George Floyd, the black man killed by a white police officer in Minneapolis, we need to go back to August 2019 and a major publication commemorating 400 years of slavery in America. From the New York Times Magazine, I'm Nicole Hannah-Jones. This is 1619. Journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones developed the project, which was turned into a podcast and later a book. Among the goals for the 1619 Project was to reframe the origin story of America, to document how instrumental the institution of slavery was in the creation of the United States. The project suggests the country did not begin with the signing of the Declaration of Independence in 1776. Instead, it dates the origin of America to when the first ship of enslaved people from Africa arrived in the English colony of Virginia in 1619. One of the things we hear all the time is, well, that was in the past. Why do you have to keep talking about the past? Well, one, I think the past is clearly instructive for how we are right now. This is journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones talking about the 1619 Project on the PBS NewsHour. We are this country built on individual rights. We are the country where if you are coming from a place where you are not free, you can come to our shores and you can get freedom. Well, then you have black people. And every time you look at black Americans, you have to be reminded that there was one fifth of our population who had no rights, no liberties, no freedom whatsoever. We are the constant reminder of really the lie at our origins, that while Thomas Jefferson was writing the Declaration of Independence, his enslaved brother-in-law was there to serve him and make sure that he's comfortable. The scope of the 1619 Project was so broad, it immediately became controversial. To some, the ideas seemed fresh and provocative. Nicole Hannah-Jones' personal essay for the 1619 Project won the Pulitzer Prize for commentary. Then, in 2020, a white police officer killed George Floyd in Minneapolis. Protests broke out around the nation and the world. As the weeks passed, tens of millions of people, many of whom were white, took to the streets. At the core of this movement, the belief that black lives matter. People chanted, the whole world is watching as protests escalated. The National Guard was deployed in Minnesota and in states across the country from California to Texas to Virginia. The show of force was an effort to bring order to the spontaneous uprisings. There was a new chapter being written in the country's racial history. Some climbed monuments to Confederate leaders and brought them to the ground. A tense standoff with police. As protesters tried to tear down a statue of former President Andrew Jackson. It's a racist Confederate statue. Okay, it should be knocked down and put in a museum. People were hungry for context. They wanted to know more about the role race plays in American society. Books about anti-racism and white privilege were flying off the shelves. Some educators looked to these works and materials like the 1619 Project to make the events a teachable moment for students. But plenty of people didn't like what they were seeing in their hometowns, on television, or on social media. Their concern was that talking about America's racial legacy polarizes the nation even more. The protests over George Floyd's murder and even the 1619 Project quickly turned into fodder for the 2020 election. We must clear away the twisted web of lies in our schools and classrooms and teach our children the magnificent truth about our country. We want our sons and daughters to know that they are the citizens of the most exceptional nation in the history of the world. 
As schools, students, and families prepared for distance learning in the fall of 2020, then-President Donald Trump announced a series of executive orders. He made a speech at the National Archives in Washington, D.C., where the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution are stored. On that day, President Trump would reignite the education culture wars with an intensity not seen since the 1980s and 90s battle over religion in schools. The left has warped, distorted, and defiled the American story with deceptions, falsehoods, and lies. There is no better example than the New York Times totally discredited 1619 Project. This project rewrites American history to teach our children that we were founded on the principle of oppression, not freedom. Nothing could be further from the truth. America's founding set in motion the unstoppable chain of events that abolished slavery, secured civil rights, defeated communism and fascism, and built the most fair, equal, and prosperous nation in human history. Trump announced the creation of a 1776 commission that would develop patriotic curriculum materials. The move was a direct refutation of the 1619 Project, which had its own lesson plans and curriculum for schools. Trump also used his speech at the National Archives to blast something called critical race theory. Critical race theory, the 1619 Project, and the crusade against American history is toxic propaganda, ideological poison that, if not removed, will dissolve. The civic bonds that tie us together will destroy our country. That is why I recently banned trainings in this prejudiced ideology from the federal government and banned it in the strongest manner possible. After Donald Trump left office, the Biden administration immediately reinstated diversity training in government agencies. And the 1776 commission never got much traction. But critical race theory has become a fixture in the national debate. Let me tell you right now, critical race theory is bigoted, it is a lie, and it is every bit as racist as the Klansmen in white sheets. The battle over critical race theory continues to heat up. Putting critical race theory into our classrooms is taking our nation in the wrong direction. My message to the Board of Ed, stop indoctrinating our children. More than 20 states have introduced legislation that would limit teaching critical race theory. Tennessee. Now, recently. critical race theory, I must say, to begin with, uh, I hadn't heard the term probably a year ago. Now I hear it every day. I think Americans are just starting to hear it. And I think no one knows exactly what it is. They know it has something to do with race, and it's some kind of a theory. <laughs> right? <laughs> All right, next. Hi. I'm so mad, I'm literally shaking right now. <laughs> Forget COVID. The real threat is critical race theory being taught in our schools. My question is, what is it? <laughs> and why am I mad about it? <laughs> Okay, you get the picture. Everybody talks about it, but doesn't really say what it is. Critical race theory, often referred to as CRT for short, has been taught in law schools since the 1980s. It's an academic approach that suggests that racial bias is inherent in U.S. laws and institutions. CRT is not part of public school curriculum. However, it has become a catch-all term to encompass any teaching of racial history, disparities, power, privilege, and bias in American institutions. Critics of CRT say it sees Americans as irredeemably racist. So it's interesting. I mean, that's a very interesting idea. Jelani Cobb is a Columbia University journalism professor, author, and staff writer for The New Yorker magazine. He's also a friend. Uh, we've known each other for several years. Cobb recently wrote a profile of Derek Bell. He's the civil rights lawyer considered to be the originator of the school of thought that would become critical race theory. 
Derrick Bell did in fact believe that racism was a permanent part of American society. And if we don't want to use the word irredeemably, what we can say is that we have never had a moment where race was not a significant factor in the outcomes of people's lives. And so the question remains to be seen whether or not Professor Bell was correct. But what we know is from inception to present, we have always been abided by the heavy hand of race uh, in our society. On the other part of it, uh, the idea that there's institutional racism in this country is really not much in dispute, you know, not at least from the data perspective. Every institution we have yields some sort of racially disparate outcome. We see that in education. We see that in criminal justice. We see that in healthcare. We see that in housing. We see that in employment. We see that in overall uh, life outcome statistics like mortality data. And at some point, the cumulative tendency of these institutions to produce racially disparate outcomes can't be euphemized away. And we have to address the question of institutional racism. Now, that explanation took all of that time. On the other side of this, people could simply say, these people are cynics and they're saying uh, that there's institutional racism, there's no such thing, and, and move on. Uh, and so that's why I think this has been such a contentious and such a confusing public conversation. In the past two years, efforts to teach about the nation's racial history have been overwhelmed by this debate. Some parents and politicians say that critical race theory itself is racist and can prompt black and white students to hate themselves. They say talking and teaching about race divides Americans even more. That definition of CRT has gained traction in conservative politics. And it has spawned legislative efforts to restrict the way we teach race and history in our schools. In some states, the laws would also affect colleges and universities. So far, legislators in 41 states have introduced bills to ban teaching divisive concepts about race. These would be concepts like anti-racism and white privilege. Remember former President Donald J. Trump's executive order banning diversity training in government agencies? Most, if not all, of the bills introduced by lawmakers are modeled with wording from the Trump order banning divisive concepts. Some of the bills would explicitly ban the teaching of the 1619 Project. So far, 14 states have signed these measures into law, either by executive order or through the legislative process. Though Critical race theory isn't typically mentioned in these bills. They are commonly referred to as anti-CRT bills. Early adopters of these laws include Idaho, Arizona, Oklahoma, Texas, Iowa, North Dakota, and Tennessee. Um, I was uh, given dismissal papers on May the 5th, 2021 the same day that the state of Tennessee's General Assembly passed its anti-CRT bill. 43-year-old Matt Hahn was a teacher in Sullivan County, Tennessee. It's where he's lived all his life and where he and his family still live. The conservative community in the northeast corner of that state is 95% white. Donald Trump handily won the county in 2020. When he was fired in May 2021, Han had been teaching at Sullivan Central High School for 15 years. I really pride myself on the environment that my students walked into every day. That there was a very safe classroom environment for them to express their opinions and their viewpoints and their perspectives. In the fall of 2020, just months after George Floyd's murder and resulting protests, Han went searching for relevant articles. He wanted discussion materials for junior and senior students in his contemporary issues class. It's my job in this class to develop a curriculum. We 
whatever is happening in, in our community, in our state, in our country, or in the world, I bring these issues to our students, uh, to my students, and uh, we look at the different perspectives around each issue, and we discuss them, we debate them, you know, we analyze all these different perspectives that surround each issue, and it's a class where we challenge students to think about the world around them. The pandemic forced Han to teach his classes in a hybrid format. He videotaped his lessons and then posted them for students to see. Early in the semester, Han had his students consider the concept of white privilege. This is white privilege, is what it looks like. That kid right there. Han is referring to an image of a white male teenager posing with a rifle. Just a few weeks before Han taped his lesson, a 29-year-old black man, Jacob Blake, was shot by police in Kenosha, Wisconsin. In an echo of the George Floyd protests, thousands of people took to the streets. The image in Han's lesson that day was of Kyle Rittenhouse, who came to Kenosha with his rifle. He killed two protesters and wounded a third. Rittenhouse later claimed self-defense and was acquitted of all charges. Whenever you can fire into a crowd of people and kill people, and then you can walk to the police, without fear of being shot back, that is the definition of privilege, of white privilege. At the conclusion of his lesson, Han says he challenged the students with this question. What are we going to do about racism? For the first time in his career, Han was told that several parents complained about the lesson. He was given the teacher code of ethics and reminded that he needed to provide varying points of view, as the code states. In January 2021, following the riot at the United States Capitol, Han assigned part of an Atlantic magazine article called America's First White President by ta Coates. A parent complained that the article was inappropriate. Sullivan County School District officials sent Han a letter of reprimand for not offering a counterperspective to the Coates article. And then in April, late April of 2021, uh, when talking about the Derek Chauvin trial, uh, my contemporary issues class watched a, a spoken word poem by Kyla Janae Lacey entitled White Privilege. Uh, there were some complaints, and then I was dismissed on May the 5th. Han was fired for unprofessional conduct and insubordination. His supporters see his firing as a casualty of the political climate created by Tennessee's anti-CRT law. Officials with the Sullivan County Board of Education say the new Tennessee law has nothing to do with his firing. Han's story has spread internationally, and he says his life has become surreal. I am just a social studies teacher and a baseball coach, what I've always been. I'm still the Matt Hahn that goes to the local grocery store and gets my groceries. I'm still um, the guy that you'll see out mowing my yard and walking my dog and just doing all these things. It's very difficult for me to process. You know, if it were someone else, I I could look and see what's happening to that person and, and, you know, be uh, and understand it a lot better. But whenever it's you, whenever you see your picture, in the Washington Post, or you, you see your picture in the front page of the Kingsport Times News for three straight days, you know, it's, uh, you know, it, it's a, it's a hard thing to, uh, to grasp, you know, I still haven't been able to wrap my head around it completely. And I, I don't know if I ever will, because that's not uh, what I set out to do or what I set out to be. I just, I was just teaching my kids. Han says he wants his job back, though the high school has canceled his contemporary issues class. As a tenured employee, he has one last appeal to the Sullivan County Chancery Court. He says the appeals process could take another two to four years. I've always been an advocate for education. If I can do anything to 
help support teachers uh, as they are going through this, uh, you know, anti-CRT, you know, book banning, book burning, book banning, uh, you know, world that we're living in, then, then I'm going to be there uh, as a supporter f- for my fellow teachers and educators. Dozens of bills just like Tennessee's are still in play across the country. As teachers watch this culture war unfold and read stories like Matt Hans, some wonder what they can talk about and what they can't. Some reportedly say they will not change the way they teach, seeing their work as an act of civil disobedience. Others will avoid talking about racism or racial history. Though many bills have made it into law, not all have been successful. In West Virginia, despite a Republican supermajority, the anti-CRT bill, called the Anti-Racism Act of 2022, failed to pass because lawmakers missed a midnight deadline on the last day of the legislative session. Like most of the CRT bills around the country, West Virginia's followed President Trump's executive order and would have prohibited the teaching of divisive concepts. Typical language in these bills prohibit teaching that one race, ethnic group, or biological sex is inherently, morally, or intellectually superior to another race, ethnic group, or biological sex. Schools may not teach that people are responsible for past actions of others. And schools must not teach that a person should feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or other forms of psychological distress because of their race, ethnicity, or biological sex. Most of these bills create a process for community members to complain if they suspect a teacher is including any divisive concepts in their lessons. On a recent West Virginia call-in show, Talkline, Host Hoppy Kerchival interviewed one of the proponents of the Divisive Concepts Bill. Republican Delegate Chris Pritt was asked what all this means on a practical level for teachers trying to teach American history. Well, somebody is still going to be able to teach about history. They're going to be able to teach about historical facts. So, for example, um, it's a historical fact that, uh, not to get too partisan here, that the, the, the Democrats... Uh, Democrat politicians were largely uh, the ones running the show when it comes to Jim Crow. That's a, a historical fact. Now, at the same time, one of the things that can't be taught is that any particular group based on race, sex, ethnicity, or religion, and so forth, can't be blamed. In other words, we're not going to be teaching our children that they should be blamed for things over which they had no control whatsoever. We can teach historical facts, but we can't teach that somebody based on their race is uh, blamed for what their ancestors might have done. But when it comes to historical facts, what should be taught in school? 1619 is the year when enslaved people arrived in what would become the United States. 1776 is the year the country declared its independence from Britain. Both are facts. How should they be taught? I'm Jonathan Zimmerman. I'm a historian. I teach at the University of Pennsylvania. Education historian Jonathan Zimmerman has written about the culture wars in public schools for decades. An updated version of his book from 2002, Who's America?, will be published this fall. The original book took a deep dive into the religion and history wars in the schools. The very short story of that book is that what I argued is that the Religion wars had no solution, and the history wars had the wrong one. So up until really the 1950s and 1960s, um, most history textbooks were just about white men. And what we did was we added more and more groups to the story, which is a fabulous thing. um, But it was, I thought, a problem because what we didn't do, I argued in 2002, was we didn't use those newly included groups 
to reanalyze the story itself. We just folded new groups into the same one. That's why the textbooks became 800 pages long, but the title was the same, you know, Rise of the American Nation, Quest for Liberty. And um, what we didn't do was use the new groups to reanalyze the story. So it did create a compromise. It created a kind of solvent. Um, everyone gets to be included, but we weren't asking hard questions about what that story really was. Zimmerman says the moment we're in right now is fundamentally different. In the past, everyone's experience was folded into what Zimmerman calls the progressive narrative of American history. The progressive narrative says, okay, bad stuff happened, we recognize it, now let's move beyond it. I think that's a very different kind of narrative than these kinds of bigotries and brutalities are baked into our institutions. Our institutions have not existed to promote freedom or to promote liberty. They have promoted and continue to promote oppression. Um, our criminal justice systems, our education systems, even our transportation systems. And again, what I'm doing here is characterizing a certain point of view that I think you can see in something like the 1619 Project. And I do believe that represents something different. Zimmerman says the so-called anti-CRT legislative efforts are abhorrent. But he does understand that it's a challenge for some people to accept anything other than the typical heroic narrative of the United States. Recent scholarship like the 1619 Project or concepts like anti-racism or white privilege call that narrative into question. There have been in our institutions, including educational institutions, some very basic challenges to traditional ideas about American benevolence, about American progress. So just to be clear, I'm deeply opposed to these laws, but I do think that the people supporting the laws are correct in their perception that these challenges to our traditional ways of seeing America have come to the fore. I think their solution to that challenge is precisely the wrong one, but their perception about the challenge itself is correct. Zimmerman says it makes perfect sense that the culture war over racial history is being waged in the schools. Schools are absolutely integral to our ideas about ourselves and to our larger politics because schools are the only public institution that we have that are charged with um, creating citizens. Um, and they're the place where we as Americans decide who we want to be. Um, there are public arena for national self-definition. That's what schools are. Um, and that's why they become set lightning rods for controversy, because we're all invested in the nation in different ways. We're at an incredibly dangerous juncture, precisely because we're shouting past each other without listening to each other. I do think that there is a consensus in this country that that isn't working. I think there's enormous and bipartisan dissatisfaction about our politics and about its ugly tone. And I think that if you believe in democracy, you have to believe in the chance for something better. You have to believe that human beings can come together and see their way out of this. I have to believe that. I don't have a choice but to believe that. Coming up after a break, who controls the way we teach our history? You're listening to Us and Them. This program is supported in part by the West Virginia Humanities Council, the Greater Kanawha Valley Foundation, the CRC Foundation, and the Daywood Foundation. difficult times, music gives us peace, brings us together, and helps heal us. It calms our nerves and brightens our days. That's why we're bringing you classic episodes of Mountain Stage on air and in our podcast. This is Larry Gross, host of Mountain Stage. Find something that's familiar or brand new and feel the power of live music on our website, mountainstage.org.
Hey, it's Trey, and this is Us and Them from West Virginia Public Broadcasting and PRX. The story of who we are as a nation is being challenged. Examining America's racial history is not easy and not welcomed by everyone. Parents are not shying away from the debate. They're energized, showing up at school board meetings to speak against curriculum they say can hurt their children. And they're voting for candidates who support a parental rights agenda. On day one, we are going to reestablish expectations of excellence in our schools. That's Republican Glenn Youngkin in October 2021, campaigning to be the governor of Virginia. Youngkin picked up support from parents because he talked about their concerns on the campaign trail. He saw their anxiety over masking requirements and the pandemic, and he tapped into their frustration about what students were learning or not learning in school. We have to teach our kids the greatness of America, but we also have to recognize we have dark, abhorrent chapters, and we must teach them too. We must know where we've come from to see where we are going. We will teach all history, but what we will not do, we will not teach our children to view everything through a lens of race and divide them into baskets and then make them compete against one another and steal dreams. We will stand up and try to live to those great words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who implored us to be better than we are, to judge one another based on the content of our character and not the color of our skin. And therefore, on day one, I will ban critical race theory from being in our school system. Youngkin won the election, defeating former Democratic Governor Terry McAuliffe. And as promised when he took office on January 15, 2022, Governor Youngkin signed an executive order against teaching divisive concepts in public schools. Youngkin's order was a version of similar legislation that's passed in a dozen states so far and is still being considered in a couple dozen more. Youngkin's victory in Virginia signaled the political potency of this culture war over race and history. It reinforces the power of a political strategy that opposes any theories or views of history that give race a central role. In Florida last summer, the State Board of Education voted to ban the teaching of the 1619 Project and critical race theory. And just before we finish this story, the Florida State Legislature approved the Stop Woke Act. Woke is an acronym for wrongs to our kids and employees. It prohibits any teaching that can make students feel personally responsible for past wrongs. And it includes similar language focused on workplace training and employment practices. Republican Governor Ron DeSantis is expected to sign it. DeSantis is also expected to sign into law a parent's bill of rights. This legislation was crafted with the input from the Florida-based Moms for Liberty. We are disrupting the balance of power in American education. We are bringing a seat to the table. That's Moms for Liberty co-founder Tiffany Justice. The Parents' Bill of Rights recognizes that parents have the fundamental right to direct the upbringing of their children. That includes their education, their medical care, their moral upbringing, their religious upbringing, character development, values education, all of those things. Justice lives in Vero Beach, which is southeast of Orlando. She was on the board of her local school district from 2016 to 2020, ending her term just as the COVID pandemic started. During COVID, I saw parents coming up to the podium and expressing concerns about their children for any number of reasons. The forced masking was affecting their child for a number of different reasons. They had concerns about the forced masking. The quarantines were incredible. I can't even tell you the horrible effects of quarantining healthy children um, and and parents responding to that, Uh, school closures. I mean, it was just one thing after another. And so 
the district really didn't care. I just saw that parents had no voice and I decided that I needed to build an army. Moms for Liberty has grown into a nationwide organization of parents. Some reports show they have 70,000 members in 165 chapters in 33 states. We're fighting for the survival of America. I truly believe that in the survival of the family. Justice, a white mom of four in her 40s, says her organization empowers parents to look behind what she calls the education curtain. American public education has continually pushed out the American parent. Parents have never been pushed further out of the classroom, to be honest with you, and visit their children's classrooms or haven't been able to for the past two years. And, um, you know, what they saw on Zoom and what they what they got to experience and, and the deficits they saw in their children's education and learning as well, right? And the parents were like, what do you mean you haven't been writing with a pencil? What do you mean that you never read a whole book completely, that you just read excerpts from it? Um, so, you know, parents were kind of looking and saying, this education our children are receiving at school is not what we thought it was. So what is the overarching goal for Moms for Liberty? I think we see that America's children are in the middle of a very serious and alarming mental health crisis. <clears throat> and we're very concerned about that. And when we look at the way that the school is, is behaving in, in the life of the child, it's a very dark and toxic setting for them oftentimes with material in it, this idea of we're just going to teach everything and everything's nothing's off topic and that there's some social crusade by schools to go further than teaching the child how to read, but to actually create them as social activists. And one of the things that I, I went on Dr. Phil and I debated on CRT, and one of the things I said was, before you turn our children into social justice warriors, can you just teach them to read? What we're seeing and what American parents and Moms for Liberty parents are seeing is the fact that schools have gotten off their mission. They're not teaching our children the basics. They're not giving them the room to unfold their full potential. What used to be part of the serving on their plate of education, DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, whatever you want to call it, SEL, alphabet soup, whatever it is, it used to be a part of their education, I guess. And now it's the whole plate. Moms for Liberty fights for parents' rights. They want students to learn academic essentials like reading. They're opposed to any form of government that gets between them and their children. My name is Keisha King. I'm a mom of two. I'm also a member of Moms for Liberty, uh, representing thousands of parents. Moms for Liberty members attend school board meetings wearing t-shirts with the Moms for Liberty logo and their slogan, we do not co-parent with the government. It is sad that we are even contemplating something like critical race theory. I don't know about you, but telling my child or any child that they are in a permanent oppressed stat, uh, status in America because they are black is racist. And saying that white people are automatically above me, my children, or any child is racist as well. This is not something that we can stand for in our country. We are not opposed to teaching truthful history. We are opposed to labeling people as oppressors and victims solely based on the color of their skin. Parents, beware of terms like social justice, diversity, equity, inclusion. Those inherently good things are being used to disguise a biased political agenda. And sadly, even in some Christian schools, Instead of creating a safe space for healthy and respectful debate, our schools are becoming indoctrination camps and a breeding ground for hatred and division. Just look what it's doing to teachers and parents. Does this look like love and unity? Moms for Liberty co-founder Tiffany Justice says she's not a political person. She says she's a registered Republican, but doesn't always vote Republican. She says Moms for Liberty does not ask its members about their political affiliation. We have all kinds of members, but the media would very much like you to think that we're some white nationalist supremacist organization. It's laughable to me. 
It is ridiculous. And it is really a disservice to parents across America, to be honest with you. American parents' voices need to be heard in the future of the public education, and we will not stop until that happens. So they can marginalize us and call us names. I think it's an effort to try to take away some of our power and our ability to recruit uh, moms to become a part of this movement. Um, But I will not be deterred. Justice says concepts that would impose a racial filter on the nation's history have no place in the public schools. Children deserve to have a bright future, and America is an exceptional country. And for them to be sent into school that, and taught that America is broken and that they have no hope and that if they're black, they're a victim, and if they're white, they're, oppress- they're, they're the oppressor, and they're keeping that other child down or taking something away from them in some way just by the very mere existence of themselves is wrong. And parents know it. Justice says that while critical race theory is not literally taught to elementary school students, she believes it seeps in through curriculum focused on social and emotional learning. I asked her about the so-called anti-CRT bills in Florida and around the country. Well, I mean, if critical race theory isn't being taught in America's public school classrooms, then what's the big deal about having laws that prohibit it from being taught? It's not being taught, I thought. I thought it wasn't something that we were teaching. Except I'm hearing that we are teaching it. I'm hearing lessons about white privilege. I'm, I'm seeing them. I, I, I talk to moms every day. I mean, I can send you copious amounts of articles and information and lesson plans and teacher testimonies where they're being taught to teach the children through this lens of oppressor and oppressed. Of, of dividing the children based on race and then having them think about things based on, you're a black person, what do you think about this? You're a white person, what do you think about this? Why are we teaching our children that their race informs everything that they do in their lives? I'm a white person, I don't practice my race. Yeah, but you have lived an experience of race. And, and yeah, and I have a friend who's a white person who was beaten every day of her life growing up and deals with that as an adult. Is she privileged? Is that privilege? I mean, everyone has their own experience in life. And your race in America, at this point in America, how much of a determinant should that be on your future? And it shouldn't. I thought, we're raising our children to grow up in a country where it doesn't matter what race you are, that you're capable of anything. That's the beauty of America. It's what makes us so incredibly special. And the idea that any child in any American classroom is being taught that because they have one type of skin color that they are somehow put into some box is frightening to me because the most amazing people were individuals who didn't participate in groupthink, that were leaders, that thought about things in a new and innovative way. And if we are constantly telling children that they have to think a certain way because of the color of their skin, we will never truly unfold the full potential of every child. I think this is part of the disconnect in the conversation and where the us and them comes into play, right? Because the them is defining critical race theory as something that the us ain't doing. Hassan Kwame Jeffries is an associate professor of history at The Ohio State University. He teaches, researches, and writes about the African-American experience. So you, know, you have too many people in this, when they started talking about critical race theory, they're saying, oh, this is teaching students that white people are inherently evil, that they're an oppressive group, and it's teaching black kids that they can't overcome um, inequality because of these obstacles in front of them. That one, that's not critical race theory. And two, nobody's teaching that. When we think about what is critical race theory, right? I mean, that's that legal framework that is being taught in law schools. Okay, that's one thing that we have to be clear about. But separate from that is our people, right, teaching and talking about, and should they be teaching and talking about the role of race and racism in American society? Yes, but that ain't critical race theory, the theoretical framework, and it certainly ain't what people are accusing teachers of teaching in the classroom. Lawmakers in Ohio, where Jeffries lives, are considering an anti-CRT bill that would prohibit teaching divisive topics. Jeffries says teachers are already afraid. The bills allow for broad interpretation that encourages community members to call people out if they suspect an educator includes these divisive topics in class. The Ohio bill also applies to college and university courses. It's already created a chilling effect, a silencing effect where you have teachers looking over their shoulder. 
not because they're doing anything wrong, but because they know that what they are teaching can be misinterpreted uh, intentionally to create chaos. And, and it's already challenging as it is. Like we know they want to teach history. We want to teach social studies accurately and effectively. But we also know that they feel, Southern Poverty Law Center did a study on this, that they don't feel adequately prepared. And so now throw on top of that, the fact that now you got people looking over your shoulder, waiting for you to say something that they can manipulate and use is insane. And so that chilling effect, that silencing effect, the people who are really harmed by that are the students in the end. Jeffrey says the new state laws are part of a dangerous trend. This is really about the fundamental principles of democracy. And those who are advocating and, and, and those who are so concerned about this legislation uh, and, and these bills, and one, it is about freedom of speech um, and academic freedom. But I think even more fundamentally than that, it's about teaching about American democracy. Uh, and how it operates in the present, but then also its history and its evolution. Along with the, the, the anti-CRT uh, legislation, we also have the wave of voter suppression laws, right? Those two are not separate because that anti-education, the anti-historical truth allows for that kind of anti-democratic legislation to proceed because it gives it a justification. Jeffrey says there are multiple legal challenges to these laws. But some of them passed almost a year ago and remain in place. Earlier in the show, we talked about the election of Republican Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. He rode a successful wave into the governor's office by backing parental rights. Hassan Kwame Jeffries says he sees the legislative, political, and parental rights push against critical race theory as a strategy to galvanize conservative voters for this year's midterm elections. It's clear that the Republican Party, the GOP, is, is planting its flag there because they know that it resonates this idea of uh, you know, white victimization uh, that, that somehow their children are being turned against them. So it's going to be used. It's going to be deployed. Uh, that has the why now and why this particular framework now has everything to do with this notion that racism is the most powerful political organizing tool that America's ever created, and it will get support, right? So that's the timing of it right now. Jeffrey says the impact of this culture war on Democratic candidates will depend on how they respond. But... The Ohio State University historian says one thing is becoming more clear. Critical race theory has already been redefined. For Democrats, they need to just forget about trying to defend the actual terminology because they've already lost that. Like they literally have lost that ground array. That debate has been won by the right. They've taken it, they've redefined it, they've reimagined the term itself. What is critical race theory? It's racism, it's anti-white, period. That's it, end of discussion. You are not winning anybody back, uh, a Democrat at this moment, uh, for anybody who, who believes that that is what it is. So you're better off not even talking about the term strategically and talking about what it is you actually want to happen in the classroom. Honest conversations about government, honest conversations about race, honest conversations about racism based and rooted in fact and historical experience. on both sides of this debate acknowledge the importance of understanding the past to help determine the future. We don't want to repeat past mistakes, but also as a country, we're always changing. And change requires insight. Too often, we think that change occurs simply because time has passed. Here's Ohio State University history professor Hassan Kwame Jeffries again. That's that nostalgic version of the past. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice, right? Yeah, Dr. King loved to say that. But we've taken that to mean that the passage of time is enough to create change, right? No, history doesn't say that. History says, American history says, that the only way to bend that arc towards justice is to exert a force 
that's capable of bending the arc. You got to do something. You have to act. In the absence of action, nothing changes. The status quo remains. And so history not only says that people have to act, but it has given a blueprint for how to act. And this is where something like studying the civil rights movement and the full spectrum of strategies in terms of political lobbying to nonviolent demonstrations and the like. And so that's the positive side. We have examples of how to create the better society that we want, how to move the nation towards a more perfect union. And you can't get there unless you understand that we were not always there in the first place. It seems to me students in American classrooms need to learn how to think critically about our history, our country, and our world. The most sensitive cultural flashpoints are often in the spotlight in our nation's schools. That's because we've been here before. We've faced challenges about how and whether to teach students about religion and sex and gender and race. And as adults continue to debate about what children should learn, an important question continues. Who decides? You've been listening to Us and Them. Our team for this episode is me, Trey Kay. Marisa Helms, and Kate Smith. Special thanks to Idea Stream Public Media, Linda Wertheimer, Gloria and Ken Oster, Eliza and Mike Olick, Isabella Draginski, Raquel, Trez, and Render McLeod, Meredith Daler, Principal of Wheeling Park High School, Michael Lipton and Tristam Lozow wrote and performed the Us and Them show music, Mark Lerner designed our logo, The marvelous people at PRX and West Virginia Public Broadcasting make us and them possible. So do grants from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the West Virginia Humanities Council, the Greater Kanawha Valley Foundation, the CRC Foundation, and the Daywood Foundation. Us and Them was originally developed with assistance from the Mentorship Program at AIR, the Association of Independence in Radio. We'll see you next time on Us and Them. Support for this podcast comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.